from the Medical Republic, I'm Wendy John. This is The Tea Room. I've been talking with our editorial board recently about what GPs are talking about around the water cooler uh, and in your tea rooms, and today's episode goes to the heart of what can be heartbreaking for doctors, the lack of psychiatric services available for young people who are at risk of self-harm. Australia's had a substantial increase in youth mental health services since the introduction of the Medicare Better Access Scheme and Headspace services around 2006-2007. But despite this, research indicates that no significant improvement in youth mental health was evident. That's according to some research published mid-pandemic in the Australian and New Zealand Journal of Psychiatry. And then there's COVID and the rise of social media. And, well, the numbers are stacking up to be pretty dire and services are overwhelmed. So what's a GP to do for and with a young person when the young person is in desperate need of psychiatric services, but there are no services immediately available? To explore this wicked question, joining us is today in the the tea room is one of last year's winners of the Mental Health Prize, Professor Ian Hickey. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for joining us in the tea room, Professor Hickey. It's a pleasure, Wendy. So, Professor Hickey, you know, what can GPs do when they have a young person who needs psychiatric or psychological help, but the services are just not available? Now you need to stop and think about it. If you think this is just something that's been precipitated by COVID, Mm. an increased demand for services we've seen during that period, or that in some way we're going to go back to the way things were, or that you can do things the way you were doing them in the 20th century referral-wise of 20 years ago, forget it. We need to all now stop and think, this is the new normal. Demand for services, people who need more specialised services, people who need more of a multidisciplinary team, people presenting at younger ages. So we are seeing a worldwide trend towards a presentation in early adolescence, particularly of younger women with self-harm, and serious suicidal behaviour. So this is the new normal. The new normal. It's a bit scary. It's very scary for a lot of GPs and a lot of others who say, well, you know, this is very important and, of course, a key part of primary care work, but it's not my primary skill set. And in the past, I would have thought about referring such a person on fairly quickly or easily to a special psychiatrist, if you can find one. Uh, or to a psychologist under the Better Access Scheme or in one of our other such things, or to a local headspace centre, thinking that they've got the expertise there to deal with these issues. So the simple referral and support type model won't work. We need GPs to be a fundamental part of the mental health team, and I would say often in a leadership role within that mental health team for ongoing serious mental health problems in young people. So I'd be saying wherever you work, wherever you live and work, whichever community you're part of, what is the range of services? What's the range of partnerships that need to be in place for this key part of your work? So it isn't just knowing where the local emergency department is or knowing one psychiatrist who occasionally sees people with a 12-month waiting list or, you know, there's a few psychologists you've heard of who are not that bad or maybe there's an eating disorder service somewhere but I don't really know where it is. You've got to now be thinking, hang on, hang on. This is a medical leadership issue. This is an issue of getting it right. Like other serious and often chronic diseases, who's the group of people, not hospitals, not emergency services, who's really going to matter here on an ongoing basis? In addition to the health services, 
There's the issue about engagement of family and support. And there's the issue of what happens typically for young people around education, schools and other settings. So this is where, you know, primary care, if it really means something in Australia, needs to get organised and adopt a leadership role at the practice level and then at the regional and community level. Mm. So the implications of that in terms of it's not just a 15-minute consultation, of course, and for GPs increasingly having to, you know, for their own practice survival, having to not bulk bill, the implications are that that's, you know, creating further structural inequity for those who can't afford longer consultations. Yeah, so the financing, I've got to say, I'm partly responsible for the referral of mental health to the Productivity Commission. Some years ago, when Scott Morrison, now Prime Minister, was the Treasurer under the Turnbull government, because we needed to change the financing, mm. we need to definitely have systems that provide time and skill to young people in these situations, for doctors, for GPs, for psychiatrists and others, for psychologists, for everybody else to work in team structures. Now, Unfortunately, we haven't got there yet on the financing reform front. On the other hand, we do have other new tools, and I'm particularly associated with technology-based tools for screening, for tracking, for encouraging self-care, for engagement over time, which I would say would need to be at the heart of many other chronic diseases as well in the, in the primary care setting, but also the trading of information rapidly between providers as they look at the sets of needs of young people. A lot of the needs young people have aren't simply psychological. They're often physical health related. They're often related to education. They may be related to other social welfare issues. Certainly they may be related to alcohol and substance abuse. And we need to be tracking risk. We need to make sure that we do support young people at times of greatest risks. Yeah. So what are some of these tools that you're talking about? So the tools that exist are at many levels. The digital tools can help with screening. So rather than having to ask the sorts of questions, if you already have had people complete screening tools before they see you, you can then see who needs to be seen by a doctor, what their range of problems are, and not have to ask 100 questions yourself in 15 minutes or 30 minutes or however long. Not No. If you need to know that a young person's at risk or a young person is complicated or a young person actually has an eating disorder or a substance abuse problem along with their mental health problem, there are screening tools. Now, I say this because lots of screening tools have been promoted, previously paper and pen, but rarely used. They are time savers, efficiency savers, and they also help to engage. Many of those tools themselves link to immediate self-help and care strategies and link to directories of services. So there's the government head to health ones themselves, but there are many other tools that one can look at. That's just one aspect. The second aspect then is coordination of care, where digital tools are important, is tracking people over time. And then the third aspect is services that are available, either help, self-help services, connecting with things that teach meditation or they teach physical activity or they teach sleep-wake cycles, they teach cognitive behavioural therapy, or online services that are provided by the Commonwealth for free through services like MindSpot or This Way Up or other sets of services where people can go there directly. So one thing is to feel not on your own. Mm. as a GP, to use some of these tools and engagement, which young people are particularly keen about. And we have seen more developments of these in areas. So making use of those tools for screening, for tracking, for providing additional services and really sorting out 
you know, who needs to be seen by who, when, where, and the extent to which specialist services need to be engaged early, not late in the course of these problems. Right. So do you have a, a list of uh, peer-reviewed or, or, or evidence-based tools that are preferential for a GP to use? So there are a range of tools in the youth mental health world, and I'd suggest to people looking at the, the tools that are available through Headspace, through Origin, ones we're associated with here at the Brain and Mind, through other institutions in Australia. I'd also suggest really finding out about the services like MindSpot and This Way Up, which provide online cognitive therapy type approaches uh, in these areas, um, as well as other things like eHeadspace, et cetera, that are available. So get, uh, there are others like Reach Out, which is very much a youth service supporting young people in tough times, which has social connection along with online tools. So Australia has quite a lot of these things. Now, they've tended to operate in isolation from general practice, and there has been, partly because of the development of Headspace, something of a disconnect between traditional family practice and designated youth services. Not a great thing, I might say. We need to have, and all those services need to have GPs working in close partnership. It's not GPs as just referrers or people who just produce, you know, referral plans, but actually people who are intimately involved particularly in the co-management of physical and mental health problems in young people. We'll put links to some of these tools in the show notes. So if you're listening in as a GP and want to, or a health service provider, and want to have a look at some of these links, check the show notes for those. Uh, Professor Hickey, are you across whether training around this is starting to be incorporated into medical colleges? So I would now like Wendy to get old and grumpy, if that's okay. (laughs) Full Full permission. People may not know this, unless you're really old like me, but I was involved when I was the CEO of Beyond Blue in the establishment of Better Access, which was called Better Outcomes originally back in 2001. What a long time ago was that? Oh, At that so stage, long was, ago. There was additional training incentives for GPs for various levels of mental health training in 2001. And there was an agreement with the College of General Practitioners at the time that this would become an intimate part of fellowship training within the college and that additional training wouldn't necessarily be required. Now, in reality, that hasn't happened. It hasn't worked out that way. So there continues to be an emphasis on additional training in mental health for additional skills. And I would encourage, and a lot has changed since 2001. There are a lot of developments in psychological therapies, a lot of changes in pharmacotherapy. More importantly, I think, is an emphasis on earlier intervention and this sort of coordinated care that I'm talking about, about how we deliver care, not just which elements are available. So there is an ongoing need for training, in my view, and for support, just like all continuing medical education. The more fundamental issue, the extent to which mental health practice has been made an absolutely essential part of general practice as a specialty, I don't think we have got there yet. So there continues to be a critique of that. Now, what distresses me further is there's often a critique by our psychological colleagues to say that general practitioners and medical people lack skills in this area. I think that's very unfair and it encourages a view about the fact that that mental health is simply a psychological discipline with no physiology, with no medical background to it and no real need to engage uh, general practitioners and more broadly uh, biomedical practice. And I think that's most unfortunate. So I think what we need is GPs to be skilled and be proactive and to support the important role that medical practitioners play in comprehensive mental health care. 
and to be unapologetic about that. There are roles for medical assessment, for testing, for the use of medicines and for the appropriate psychological support and coordinated primary care, which is built around family practice in Australia. Do you know the stats around how often young people go to see a GP? Because normally it would be led by a parent. I go to a GP more as an adult than I ever did as a young person, which admittedly was a long time ago. But if we're not, how can we do preventative care or early intervention if young people aren't presenting until it is almost too late? So it's not unusual whether you're talking about a headspace centre or any other youth centre for a young person to be brought to care by a parent. That's fine. The next step of whether the young person's concerns are dealt with is where the problem lies and the confidence in dealing with that. So it still remains the case that if general practice is engaged with a family and that family has young people, then using family practice as an entry point is critical. What we need are GPs who go, good, thank you for coming. This is the opportunity. Or if you're here for another reason, if you're here as a young woman for contraception or for sexual health needs, or you're here as a young man due to a sporting injury or some other particular problem, that we see the opportunity that overwhelmingly the main health problems of young people are mental health and substance abuse related, and that general practice can and wants to be involved with these sets of issues because they are the major health issues. Not going to just ask them about their weight or not just going to assume because they look physically good that they're necessarily in good mental health. Yes. And the issues that are related to body image and eating problems and related other health difficulties are profound in association with mental health problems. The, also, the prevention issue, the early intervention, isn't just for their mental health. Young people with mental health problems smoke more, are often overweight, often have other eating problems, other, have other health difficulties and are on a trajectory, if they get a significant anxiety and depression, to premature cardiovascular disease. I'm involved in research looking at their insulin resistance and looking at their inflammatory profiles and other sets of health factors. So a lot of early intervention in this area is as much for the physical health problems as it is for the mental health problems. There's a layperson's understanding of a good link between diet and exercise and, and mental well-being. In terms of young people, how effective would a GP be addressing those matters to help with mental health? Putting an emphasis on some key factors to improve your health for life, like your sleep-wake cycle, like physical activity, like your alcohol and drug use, uh, or like your diet and maintaining good health for your mental health and for your physical health. This is critical. GPs can play a critical role here and picking up disturbances in eating behaviour, body image, weight gain, lack of physical activity, disturbed nighttime sleep patterns and saying, look, these are issues that affect your physical health and your mental health, your whole health. And where GPs should have a strategic advantage over all other health professionals is actually in having that discussion. It isn't just simply psychological. It isn't just about what other uh, social or psychological difficulties you might be facing at school or in your family or in your community. It's about your whole health. And we care. These patterns that you set up in your adolescence and early adult life, whether you are smoking, whether you are drinking excessively, whether you're gaining weight, whether you've developed a very abnormal eating pattern or a very abnormal sleep pattern, these affect potentially your health for life. And more importantly, your mood and function right now. Of course, people are more interested in the immediate outcomes often than whether they're yeah. going to 
cardiovascular disease in 25 years' time. In terms of feeling better, in terms of looking better, in terms of being better, in terms of being able to function, these things all sit together. So this, you know, people go on and on and on in the natural world, naturalistic therapies world, is about whole health, you know, how holistic they are. In truth, you know, family medicine should be more holistic than any of those other pseudosciences ever are. And what it requires is good engagement, a willingness to sit with young people, a willingness to provide an open door, a willingness to engage, and not just be seen as something that deals with the chronic medical difficulties of ageing populations. There's such an opportunity here for GPs and, you know, to, to jump on young person coming in, sporting injury, okay, that's, that's a point of contact. I can develop a relationship with that person. Uh, you know, even if parents are coming in or carers or grandparents or kinship carers coming in, you know, and you know that there's a young person or you find out there's a young person in their care, asking them perhaps, inviting inviting them to for the young person to come on in for a health check if they haven't had one in some time. Absolutely. The opportunistic screening, the opportunistic preventive health is clear. Any sort of work that's ever been done with young people, including our own in primary care settings, indicates the extent to which you will detect psychological ill health at risk behaviours and the opportunity is there for early intervention and secondary prevention. The question is, are you up to it? Or do you see a young person in the waiting room going, oh, great, that's a five-minute consultation. I'll fix that up, write a script for the pill, give them their asthma puffer and you know that'll be an easier consult than anything else. As distinct from, it actually is the opportunity to actually have those sets of discussion, to establish the relationship, probably in about 50% of cases, to detect that there are problems but they won't be detected unless you ask. 50% of young people have something else going on for them that's not good psychologically. Who are attending primary care, right? right? If you think they're just there to get a script, if they're just there to get a vaccine, if they're just there for the sporting injury, okay? If that's what you assume, that's probably all you'll hear and it'll probably be a brief consultation. If you stop, and you make the time and you ask, or more importantly, if you're using a screening tool that encourages disclosure, or you take up the sets of issues, you just take up the sets of issues. Life is tough for young people at the moment. The COVID period's been very disruptive. We know a lot of people have really struggled. We know a lot of people are concerned about their future. We know a lot of young people think that older people, not that all doctors are older people, aren't concerned, that we don't care about the challenges that they face in their world at the moment. You know, there is a sense that the health system has been set up for the chronic diseases of those older populations and as we age and that we don't care. Now, really great GPs in this area, really great family practitioners in this area have always sought to establish these kind of relationships, but we need to be more proactive than ever, that this is a place so when I hear people say young people never want to go to their family doctor, they only want to go to Headspace or they only want to go, okay, that's nonsense. You know, where there are good existing relationships, and you see this, I've just returned from one of our rural and regional areas up on the north coast of New South Wales and other areas, you know, where GPs and are established members of the community, where they've dealt with families over long periods of time, they've seen these young people as kids, they know them, there often are established trusting relationships. The basis is there. The question is, 
do we as a health system and do we through our GPs make use of that to ask these more sensitive questions, to explore these more sensitive mm. areas? You know, I have had the unfortunate experience with some GPs of I don't want to ask because I don't want to know because then I'm going to have to do something and I'm not confident that we have the service structure to mm. respond. Now, that is not good enough for asthma. It's not good enough for diabetes and it's not good enough for serious mental health problems. We've got to be both detecting but then responding in appropriate ways. I want to put a plug in for young people who are in foster care or kinship care or residential care because the research is showing that their interaction with the health system is desperately low, whereas it needs to be a lot higher because their experience of mental illness and other illnesses, other disease is higher than someone who's not in foster care or out-of-home care. So that's, a, that's an especially vulnerable population of young people and, you know, GPs One of the real challenges we have at a population level in Australia is to get outside the clinic-based model. I'll see all the people in the waiting room, but if they're not in the waiting room, they're not my problem. And yet many of the most vulnerable populations for mental health are disconnected from the health system, the welfare system. They are people who are in foster homes. They're people with insecure housing and accommodation. They're people who are in various justice systems. They're people from disadvantaged backgrounds. They're members of our Indigenous communities. They're not tapped into the health system in a traditional family way. I deal a lot with students, if I can express my complete frustration with the university sector and others, where, you know, in certain parts of the world, the ACT, in certain parts where we have big university centres here in central Sydney, there is no access to general practice. They're just seen as not part of the community, yet they are. So we have a whole lot of examples where we need to find ways that primary care general practice connects with those who are not often in the waiting room, but actually have significant health needs. And they're the ones, of course, who then turn up in emergency departments, they turn up in other settings, they turn up with more advanced problems, they're often more complex in terms of their sets of needs, but they are at great risk of very poor mental and physical health outcomes in the longer term. And I think this is a big issue in mental health, not just for general practice, but right across the board. We have got to do a whole lot more than simply attend to those who find it easy to be in our waiting rooms. Now, a part of me is going, hang on, there's, there's probably people listening who, who are thinking, of course I want to do this, but I am absolutely flat strap, overwhelmed as it is as a doctor. Like, hang on, COVID. Uh, hang on, you know, struggling to run my practice with lower resources. I want to do this, but I just don't have the resources or time to make it happen. The no time excuse is the biggest excuse for doctors to actually continue practice as is. Of course, any of us can be busy any day, six days a week. The demand for medical care is bottomless and most of it is justified. I mean, there are real needs to be attended to, but there are choices to be made. General practice, I mean, some of the most interesting GPs I deal with work in multiple settings. They may spend time in a traditional family practice, but they may also be providing services to a headspace centre that doesn't have a GP or to a justice centre or to another non-government organisation. And there have been some fabulous GPs initiatives with homeless kids and with other areas. They're spending part of their time in services that actually proactively connect with young people in trouble. Also, I've seen some fabulous examples of traditional practices that have changed what they've done 
to actually have more people with mental health problems come in, actually attract young people through their partnerships with other youth organisations, that other youth organisations can bring those kids to this practice because this practice will actually deal with more disadvantaged or more disconnected kids, where the connecting is done by that NGO or community organisation, whether that's organised directly or it's organised through primary healthcare networks or it's organised through some other agency, but to actually reach out and do that. What does your practice do? How youth-friendly is it? Who do we partner with? To what extent are you a serious part of the community or are you just a standalone clinic which day basically deals with whatever makes the practice run and whatever pays the bills? This is a really serious issue for medicine as a profession and medicine as a social uh, entity of some considerable significance. And again, it's really obvious in rural and regional areas to which the latter is true, that the the serious community responsibility, the social license to operate, if you will, is taken more seriously. It's less easy to find in many urban practices and other areas where people just say, well, I'm just another provider in competition with the providers up the street, you know, in different sorts of psychological or medical practice. But I think you know, for health in Australia, and I think the tradition of medicine in Australia is a very socially responsive one. And this is one of the serious 21st century challenges we need to respond together to. Well, it sounds like if you're not going to see them now, you're going to end up seeing them later in, in a, at a more intense moment or with a chronic disease down the track. You know, in my career in medicine, and I must say in emergency medicine, I always thought it was better if the problem could have been prevented or was less significant you know trying to fix things after the horse has bolted it's a necessary and important part of medicine but boy it does leave you dwelling i mean i've sadly in my career sat with the parents of kids who've killed themselves and one mother's anguish sticks with me as she cried you know what more could i have done as a parent and i was thinking i said to her there's nothing more that you could have done But the lingering question for me is what more could we have done, we the collective health system, to which the answer is stacks. We could have done stacks more in terms of early intervention, coordinated care, you know, providing a safe wraparound for a kid who was really in a lot of trouble, who didn't get a really good service from any of the people involved, medical, psychological, health and education. You know, we just haven't got our act together in the way we've got our act together for kids with cancer or kids with diabetes or kids attending children's hospitals. You know, we just haven't really built a system that's fit for purpose. And we can't just simply say, well, this is the way we do it. That's the way we've always done it. We have a GP primary care and then we refer to specialist services and then they should do it. You know, we are great buck passers in the Australian healthcare system. I think these are issues of 21st century leadership for the main issues. And intervening earlier is so much better for those who are affected and I'd say also more effective medical practice. Professor Ian Hickey, thank you so much for your time today in the Tea Room. Thanks for the opportunity. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can search for us on your favourite podcast player and subscribe. Leave us a review if you like. If you have any news tips or want to chat, you can email me at wendy at medicalrepublic.com.au. The Tea Room is a production from the journalists at the Medical Republic. Visit us at medicalrepublic.com.au to keep up to date with all the latest news and views in general practice. And while you're there, make sure you subscribe to our newsletter. We love to keep you informed. Thanks for tuning in.